I'm convinced that when it comes to God's wisdom, that it's a bit like our understanding of electricity. Electricity is an interesting thing on the island of New Providence. We have these rolling blackouts. One of the brothers who works for BEC that's a faithful member of this church has told me, I asked him innocently, who do you work for? And he said, I work for BEC, bringing you the light and then plunging you into the darkness. I preached this sermon at 8 o'clock, and a different employee of BEC told me that there was a situation on the south part of the island this week that the power went out, and it wasn't due to a rolling blackout, but the neighborhood assumed that it was, and they never phoned the electric company to say there was a power outage. And so there was near-medical emergencies with an, an elderly woman who was she needed to get cooled off without AC and, or a fan. So what he told me, you get this first from the pulpit at Calvary Bible Church, the BEC employee said when the power goes out, Every time it goes out, phone them and say it's out. Because it may not be a rolling blackout. It may be something else, a equipment problem. So I hope that the operators at BEC have taken their vitamins because they're going to get a lot of calls, right? Well, that being said, for many of us, wisdom is like electricity. We're for it, but we don't exactly know what it involves. We want to use it, but we don't exactly know how it works. When it comes to wisdom, like electricity, we want more of it, but we don't know how the best way is to get it. And we like it, but we can take it for granted. Yes, sometimes when we look at wisdom, it's like how we look at electricity. We really do, I think, have some significant questions, significant confusions about wisdom, and particularly about God's wisdom. For instance, is wisdom a spiritual gift, or is it an answer to prayer? Is wisdom a natural talent, or is it a grace gift? Should we chase after wisdom, or should we let it come to us? Is there any wisdom in the world system that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out of everything, or is wisdom totally monopolized by our God? Will wisdom produce for us material or spiritual dividends? These are just some of the questions that I think we have when it comes to the topic of wisdom. Wisdom is our topic this morning, and we want to let God's Word demystify wisdom by looking at James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. I encourage you to turn to James chapter 1, 5 through 8 together with me. As we come to this passage, the second passage that I will preach through the New Testament book of James, we come to see there'll be four walls that these verses tell us we ought not to erect in our lives because these four walls will block our reception of God's wisdom. But before I get to the four walls of today's verses, I want to take us back to last Sunday's first four verses of James chapter 1 by way of review. What we saw together in the first four verses of James chapter 1 last Sunday was that trials are from God. They're our friends. They have purposes that they accomplish that nothing else can accomplish in our walk with God. Trials are not to be averted, avoided. 
disdained, but instead trials from God are to be welcomed for their purpose in our lives. We said that the verses show us that trials, among other things, test our faith in God like nothing else can, and trials produce perseverance in us, and perseverance produces a maturity in us and a completeness in us. Let's see the first four verses of James 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you want to be perfect? in your walk with God, then welcome trials. Do you want to be complete in knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Then tolerate and work through trials. That's what they do. The Olympics are on, of course, in Rio de Janeiro, and uh, I'll be following some, rooting first for the Bahamas, second for Canada, and third for the United States, if you know what I mean. And I will be cheering on the athletes. And when you look at those Olympians, they are young, They are virile, they are trained, they are in shape, they are ready to compete. God wants you and me to be spiritually like Olympians. He wants us to be mature in our walk and knowledge of God and complete in our understanding of who we are in Christ. You know, if we have in the Olympics a 30-year-old athlete with one leg, he is mature, but he's not physically complete. But on the other hand, if they waltzed out an 8-year-old to compete for some country in Rio, he might be complete physically, but he is immature as an 8-year-old. God wants you to be both mature and complete. And the only way that you will be mature and complete is if you learn the lessons that God lovingly sends your way that are tailor-made for you called trials. That's what we learned last week. We learned that God uses trials to hone us into maturity, to shape us into completeness. And they're tailor-made to each of us so we can rejoice in them. We can be glad in them. We can stop saying when asked, how are you doing? Pretty good under the circumstances. We can stop saying that. We can get above our circumstances, above our trial, to see God better and to become more conformed to the lovely image of our Savior. And so that being said, we come to verses 5 through 8, the next verses in chapter 1, and these five, these verses rather, 5 through 8, give us four walls, four walls you never want to put up, or four walls, if you sense they're up this morning, you tear them down. Don't leave the sanctuary this morning with any of these four walls up in your lives. So what's the first wall? The first wall that blocks the reception of God's wisdom in our lives is denial. The wall of denial will block our reception of God's wisdom. You know what the wall of denial sounds like? The Christian who says, I don't need God's wisdom. Oh, we may not say it out loud, but the way we don't pray 
really says, we're saying to God, I don't need your wisdom. I'll go it alone. When we deny that we need God's wisdom, we have a wall up to getting God's wisdom. When we are arrogant enough to think that we've got it all together or that somehow asking God for help is a negative sign of our weakness or that we call for some other source of wisdom, we think that all of life's profound questions can be answered on Wikipedia or by Google search then we have a wall of denial up to receiving God's wisdom. We don't want that wall. Look at verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, to know you lack wisdom, you have to know you lack wisdom. you got to be real. Real with God, real with yourself, real with the people around you. To say, I need wisdom I don't have. I'm going to simply ask my God for wisdom. Now, if you, do you think that when James wrote to the believers of the 12 tribes of Israel who were dispersed around the world due to persecution in the first century, when he said in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, that he really thought nobody was going to say, that's me? <laughs> no. He knew that all of his readers, wherever they were, whatever circumstances they were in, whatever trials they were facing, all of them should have said, hey, that's me. If any of you lacks wisdom, I hope this morning you're saying, that's me. I lack wisdom. Because if you don't admit you lack wisdom, you have a wall of denial up, and you're going to block the reception of God's wisdom. We fly, living in the Bahamas, beautiful Bahamas. We fly. We live on an island. We either fly or we go on the Bohengi, right? So we do a lot of flying if we travel anywhere. I know we're seated in that aircraft, and the steward or the stewardess gets out the life vest and does the demonstration, right? Gets out the oxygen mask and does the demonstration. Do you know the persons who are hanging on every word of the flight attendant's uh, demos? The person who actually believes they might need the equipment. The person who realizes the plane could go down in the water. The person who realizes the cabin pressure could fall. And so they listen to the demonstration. They don't pretend to have it all together. They want to know, how do I inflate that thing? How do I get that on my mask? How do I deal with my little child if the cabin pressure goes down? What do I? Who puts the mask on first? If we come to understand that in daily living, we lack the wisdom we need in and of ourselves, we are going to ask God regularly for his wisdom. We won't have an attitude, I don't need God's wisdom, thank you very much. That will not be our attitude. So we don't want the wall of denial. We don't want to say, I don't need God's wisdom. There's a second wall we don't want. The second wall to blocking the reception of God's wisdom is the wall of delinquency. The wall of delinquency. The wall of delinquency has the hard attitude, I won't ask for God's wisdom. I won't ask for God's wisdom. Why would a Christian develop that wall of delinquency? Why would that be? Verse 5 be. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
We need together to realize our own individual lacks of wisdom, and we need to ask God for what we lack because God gives us what we lack, and he's always more than enough with respect to what we lack. Yet when we refuse to ask God for his wisdom, the wisdom we lack, we have a wall of delinquency up to getting in on that very wisdom we so desperately need. And so why in the world would a Christ follower have the hard attitude, I won't ask God for wisdom? Why would that be? Two things I see in the verse. Fear, we are fearful, and second, we are proud. When we are fearful and when we are proud, we will say to God in so many words, I won't ask you for your wisdom. Let's take up the thing of being fearful. James points out in verse 5 that the Lord gives generously. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously. Think of that. God gives generously when we ask him for his wisdom. The original word in Greek here for translated generously means simply. God gives his wisdom simply. That is, God is giving to us consistently pure and simple wisdom, his wisdom. God is giving to us in a way that never, ever is a mixture of good and bad motives. God gives to us wisdom simply. His wisdom imparted to us is never sullied. It's never stained. It's never insecure. It's never an act of one-upmanship. It's never manipulation. Sometimes we are afraid to ask another human being for their help because we figure that it might wind up costing us too much. Would you help me? We think, then she's going to ask me later, will I help her? Don't look at God that way. Ask him. For wisdom, don't be delinquent to ask God for wisdom because God's wisdom is always generous. God's wisdom is always pure. God's wisdom is always simple. God's wisdom comes to us without strings attached. God's wisdom comes to us without manipulation. God's wisdom comes to us without mixed motives. Ask him. Don't be fearful. Verse 5 gives us a second reason that we might put up the wall of delinquency, a wall of not wanting to ask God for his wisdom. It's pride. We're too quick to be proud, aren't we? We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We deny that we have our faults. We deny that we have our lackings. We deny that we have shortcomings or needs. And when we are proud, the very last thing that we want from anyone is a lecture. The very last thing we want when we're proud is someone rubbing our faces in it, in our deficiencies, rubbing our faces in our deficiencies. But our Lord God doesn't lecture us when we ask him for wisdom. He doesn't rub our faces in our messes. Instead, when we ask him for his wisdom, he gives to us without finding fault in us. Amazing. Verse 6, let him ask in faith Without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind back to five. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach. God gives us wisdom without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
So don't put up the wall of delinquency. Don't put up the wall that I won't ask God for wisdom because I'm afraid. I won't ask God for wisdom because I'm proud. Tear that wall down. The I won't ask God for wisdom wall. He's a heavenly father, merciful and compassionate. True story from the 1992 Barcelona Olympic Games. In Max Lucado's book, He Still Moves Stones. Jim Redman had a son, Derek, 26-year-old from Britain, who was favored to win the 400-meter race in the 92 Barcelona Olympics. Halfway into his semifinal heat, a fiery pain seared through his right leg. He crumpled to the track with a torn hamstring. As the medical attendants were approaching, Redman fought to his feet. It was animal instinct, he would later say. He set out hopping, pushing away the coaches in a crazed attempt to finish the race. When he reached the stretch, a big man pushed through the crowd. He was wearing a T-shirt that read, Have you hugged your child today? And a hat that challenged, Just do it. The man was Jim Redmond, Derek's father. You don't have to do this, he told his weeping son. Yes, I do, Derek declared. Well, then, Jim said, we're going to finish this together. They did. Jim wrapped Derek's arm around his shoulder and helped him hobble to the finish line, fighting off security men, the son's head sometimes buried in his father's shoulder in pain. They stayed in Derek's lane to the end. The crowd clapped and then stood and then cheered and then wept as the father and son finished the race. What made the father do it? What made the father leave the stands to meet his son on the track? Was it the son's strength? No, it was the son's pain. It was the son's hurt. It was the son's fight to complete the race. And so the father came to help him finish. Don't be proud. Don't be fearful to ask God for wisdom. He's a father will delight in giving you wisdom. Don't put up the wall of delinquency. Verse 5 states that our Lord gives wisdom without finding fault. This means that God's gift of wisdom is unleveraged. It comes to us without bargaining and without negotiating whatever. It's free and clear gift of wisdom. There's no strings attached to God's gift of wisdom. And yes, the second wall to God's wisdom is our wall of delinquency, our delinquency to ask God for his wisdom. Sometimes our delinquency is rooted in fear, and other times it's rooted in pride. But let's not have a spirit of fear or pride to build a wall inside of us. And if the wall already stands, please trust the Lord and humble yourself so as to tear the wall of delinquency down. I should point out that ask here is a present active imperative. We are commanded, therefore, to regularly ask for God's wisdom. So to leave the wall of delinquency up, to leave that wall up, I won't ask for God's wisdom, is sin. We've seen a wall of denial. I don't need God's wisdom. We've seen the second wall of delinquency. I won't ask for God's wisdom. 
And the third wall we do not want in our lives is doubt, the wall of doubt. This wall says, I doubt if God will give me his wisdom. Look at doubt in verse 6. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Family, when we doubt God, we shoot ourselves in the foot. For the only thing which can derail our God's simple and free and clear giving of his wisdom to us as his children is our doubt that he will do so. That's the truth of verse 7, isn't it? For let not that man expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord. Put plainly, here's the truth. You doubt that God will give you his wisdom? Verse 7 says, go ahead, doubt, and you won't see God's wisdom. Now, why is it? Why would it be that the Lord has ordained that our doubts in him derail the delivery of his wisdom to us? Why would that be? Simple. God can't trust his wisdom to a doubter. Because doubters are windblown. Doubters are unpredictable waves. Doubters are double-minded, double-souled, undecided, confused, and unchangeable people. Let me ask you, who have children who are of an age of majority, would you loan your credit card to your son or daughter if they were doubtful, unpredictable, Double-minded, double-souled, undecided, confused, and highly changeable? No way. I wouldn't give my credit card to my child who was like that, and neither would you. And neither does our Heavenly Father give his wisdom to his double-minded children. It's too risky. Because the double-minded Christian is tossed to and fro by the waves and circumstances and ideas of life. They're not dependable. God won't risk his wisdom to that kind of a believer. Now, it's been helpful to me in trying to understand these principles to picture how belief, unbelief, and doubt relate to each other. You know the seesaw on the playground for children? The seesaw with two seats and a pivot point in the middle, and one child gets on one seat, and another child gets on the other seat of the seesaw, and they have lots of fun going up and down. Picture it this way, that belief is one seat on the seesaw, and unbelief is the other opposite seat on the seesaw. You know where doubt is? Right in the middle at the fulcrum of the seesaw. There's no seat for the doubter on this illustration. They just try to sit on the bar of the seesaw without a seat, where all the action is taking place at the fulcrum. It's a dangerous position to be in. To be in the place of doubt on that seesaw is very dangerous because if you try to get onto the seat where there is no seat on the bar at the fulcrum of the seesaw, you're apt to get hurt when it's in action. Or if you sit on that place on the fulcrum of the seesaw and they start to have fun on the seesaw, if you fall off and you easily can, then one end of that seesaw can bang you in the head or somewhere else in the body and hurt you. The doubting Christian is at the pivot point of a seesaw. They're in a dangerous position 
to be harmed themselves and to harm others that depend on them, their spouses, their children, their church, their business associates. The doubting Christian is at the fulcrum of the seesaw, and that's not the place to be because there's no seat at that point on the seesaw. You're unstable at that place. The seat that God wants us in is the belief seat, not the unbelief seat and not the doubting position in the middle, but in the belief seat. The person in the belief seat that believes God has wisdom to impart, believes God will graciously give that wisdom without bias or prejudice to the person in, in faith that asks him for that wisdom, that's the person to be on the seesaw of life, in the seat of belief. Now, verse 6 calls this no seat on the bar of the seesaw at the fulcrum condition a wave. Verse 6 but let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, a wave of the sea. We live with the sea all around us. The beautiful aqua waters of the Bahamas are all around us, how much we enjoy them. God says, don't be at the no-seat bar of the fulcrum of the seesaw in doubt because you'll be like the surf of the sea. You'll be like a wave. The idea here is the kind of a long wave that sailors dread and ship uh, captains dread, a long wave, a horizontal wave of mammoth size that wind can quickly whip up into a white cap that's unpredictable and dangerous. A doubting Christian is like the surf of the sea in that regard. And so, my brothers and sisters, when we doubt God's wisdom or when we doubt God's willingness to share his wisdom with us, we are like a swell, a surge of the sea, just waiting to turn into a white cap, and we are dangerous. And God will not share his wisdom with us because we are mere moments mere circumstances away from becoming totally unpredictable and erratic waves on the sea. When we doubt, we are flirting with disaster, much like the young child who climbs upon the seesaw at the middle fulcrum point without a seat and tries to have a joyride. The Lord simply is not going to give or risk giving his wisdom to a Christian swell surf who will soon become a Christian whitecap. Too much is on the line. Others are watching that Christian. Others are listening. Others are learning from that Christian. Others are copying that Christian. And the whitecap is too jerky, too erratic, too inconsistent, too changeable, too unstable for God to trust his wisdom to that person unrepentant. That person, that doubting Christian, cannot be a reliable delivery mechanism of God's wisdom to a foolish world order that surrounds him or her. Ah, but when we stop doubting, when we place our faith in this all-wise God and believe he will share his wisdom with us, when we stop doubting, the Lord calms us. He makes us still water, although we could have been whitecaps. Firmly resting on the seesaw seat of belief, we can be real blessed to be delivery systems of our God's wisdom to other people. You see, belief in God shields us from being a wind-tossed whitecap 
that's dangerous. Belief in God for us is a shelter to the winds of life, and that belief in God keeps us as still, safe seawater, a harbor. This morning, I'm wondering, would God call you a swell, a surf in the sea who's just moments away from being a white cap? Or would God call you still water that he has made still in his wisdom that is a safe harbor for hurting people that come into your life? I wonder, are there matters you are doubting God about this morning? to do with your marriage, to do with your children, to do with your prodigal child, to do with your finances, are the things you are doubting God for with respect to your health. The doctor has said, Mr. Elliot, that shows up clear on the MRI, but am I worrying nonetheless that the doctor is wrong? Just take a moment of silence to confess any area that you are doubting God about now, right from where you sit. Tell God what you've doubted him in. Tell him you're going to trust him. He delights to hear these prayers. Tell the Lord you're going to trust him for specific things. You're going to stop being the surf of the sea a risky one to give wisdom to. And you're going instead be the still and calm water of the harbor because you trust the Lord for the circumstances you've been doubting him about. Thank you, Lord, for hearing the prayers of your people. We would learn to trust you more. Amen. Every single time, you choose belief over unbelief. Every single time you choose prayer over worry. Every single time you choose thanksgiving over complaint. You choose the seesaw seat of belief. And you get off the fulcrum bar of doubt. It's that simple. Every time you choose belief over unbelief and prayer over worry and thanksgiving over complaint, you are moved by God from being a white cap to being still harbor water. So far we've seen three walls that we can put up but ought not to. Three walls to God's wisdom. The wall of denial saying, I don't need God's wisdom. The wall of delinquency saying, I won't ask for God's wisdom. And the wall of doubt, I doubt God will give me his wisdom. There's a fourth wall in the passage a wall that we either need to tear down or we need to make sure never goes up, and it's divided allegiance. The wall of divided allegiance. It's the wall that says, I'll marry God's wisdom with the world system's wisdom, the world system that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out of everything, and I'll just marry the two types of wisdom, and I'll get the best of both. There may be a place for a diversified portfolio in investment, but there is no place for a diversified viewpoint on wisdom. 
Don't raise the wall that is a barrier to receiving God's wisdom by having a divided allegiance of trying to marry God's wisdom with the world system's wisdom. You say, is it possible for a true born-again Christian to put up this wall? You won't believe it. Look at verse 8, verse 7 and 8. For let not that man expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. A double-minded man. Let me tell you about some of the double-mindedness in the body of Christ that I have had to pastor through in 30 years. Christians, professing Christians who consult tarot cards for their future, who go to fortune tellers for their future, Christians who practice yoga, Christians who are superstitious and think they can channel power from outside themselves into their pursuits and exploits, Christians who do transcendental meditation, Christians who are into astrology and horoscopes. This is being double-minded. This is being unstable. Christians who dabble in voodoo. The doubting Christian is the double-minded Christian and literally the double-souled Christian. S-O-U-L-E-D, double-souled. Please consider this with me, family. When you are double-souled as a believer, you are having a civil war of intellect, emotion, and will ongoing in you constantly. And this is not a pretty picture. This is the picture of an extremely troubled believer, oftentimes depressed. Not all depression is caused by double-mindedness, but some depression is. Sometimes the Christian gets so far into this double-mindedness, this double-souledness, that they want to kill themselves. And this kind of a double-minded Christian with the wall of divided allegiance up is perpetually mixed up. Constantly undecided. A skink is a smooth and shiny lizard. That's not photoshopped. That's a skink. The first skink was discovered by a homeowner in Jacksonville, Florida, and now is in a zoo. What makes a skink unusual is that it has two heads one head at each end of its body. Talk about a frustrated little creature. When it tries to run, its legs actually move in opposite directions. The skink is a perfect picture of the pain and the plight of the double-minded Christian. He or she runs harder and gets nowhere. He or she thinks more and decides less. Just as the skink needs to be one mind, the double-minded Christian also needs to have single-mindedness, the mind of Christ, God's wisdom. Because God will not give his wisdom to you if you're double-minded. Because you're too unstable when you're double-minded. God will move you as you let him, as you cooperate with the Spirit. God will move you to single-mindedness as Christ becomes your highest allegiance, the boss of your life. I've taught you before, when it comes to Jesus Christ's lordship, no and Lord don't go together. If you say no, he's not your Lord no matter what you say. If you say no to Christ in anything, 
he's not Lord. But if he's Lord, you don't say no to him about anything. The Christian who lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ is single-minded and is the recipient and the, and the conduit, the dispersal system of God's wisdom. Is that you? It's the normal Christian life. Way back before some of you were born, way back in November of 1997 in Canada, the Canadian postal strike was looming and happened. And such a threat of work stoppage caused some unusual happenings in Canada. Bills came with inserts instructing customers how to pay at banks or by computer. Expecting a spike in business, the courier companies in Canada stopped dealing with customers who didn't already have accounts with them. Television ads urged the people to mail their Christmas parcels anyway. <laughs> they were from the post office. We're going to stop our work and be on strike, but you go ahead and mail your Christmas packages anyway. That was curious. Mailboxes were actually locked and screwed shut, so you couldn't mail letters. And all of these measures were totally necessary because the Canadian mail delivery system couldn't be relied on to actually deliver the mail during that strike. The Canadian Postal Service, the delivery system for mail, was unstable, non-functional. Let me ask you, do you realize that we who are in Christ, that we who are redeemed, we are God's mail system, delivery system for his wisdom to get to the world? We are God's delivery system for his wisdom to get to the world. What happens if the church of Jesus Christ goes on strike? What happens if the assemblies of believers in Nassau and the Bahamas puts up these four walls to God's wisdom and we no longer receive God's wisdom? Therefore, we can no longer impart God's wisdom. What happens? Well, the first thing to notice from 1 Corinthians 1.30 is that Christ himself has become wisdom for us, the wisdom from God. So God has really delivered his wisdom to us as believers in Christ. We have God's wisdom in Christ for our marriages. We have God's wisdom in Christ for our parenting. We have God's wisdom in Christ for our workplaces. We have God's wisdom in Christ for our political parties. And then Colossians 3, 16, first part of A in that verse, makes it very clear. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you and teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Yes, the church of Jesus Christ, you and me, we are to be the delivery system of God's grace, the delivery system of God's wisdom, the delivery system of God's wisdom personified in Jesus Christ and inscripturated in the Bible. We are to be the delivery system. But what happens if we go on strike? What happens if the delivery of God's wisdom becomes so sporadic, so spotty, so inconsistent, so undependable? What happens? Bad stuff. Very bad stuff happens. Number one, cults 
and various forms of idolatry spring up. These are efforts for searching people that they can pay their own soul's sin debt bills without Jesus' blood. That's what happens when the church of Jesus Christ begins to fail to deliver God's wisdom. Cults and false beliefs rise up. Second problem, when we are not the delivery system of wisdom that God means for us to be as a church, wisdomless churches happen. Local assemblies like this one become wisdomless. And do you know the sure symptom of a wisdomless local assembly is it's turned in on itself, and it doesn't think about its community. It doesn't think about people dying and perishing in sin and going to hell as long as the programs are there for my kids, as long as the Bible studies are there for me and my friends. That's the symptoms of a wisdomless church, a church that isn't conveying the wisdom of Jesus Christ to her neighborhood. Bad stuff happens when Local assemblies go on strike with delivering God's wisdom. Cults and false idolatry springs up in wisdomless churches. And in the third place, if there's any evangelism by that kind of a church, it is so impotent, it is so, it is so tepid and lukewarm, it's so hypocritical, and it's powerless. The church that ceases to look to God for his wisdom, that ceases to understand that we are to be the dispensers of God's wisdom, when we cease to do that and we have the nerve to share our faith in our flesh, it's powerless witnessing, hypocritical witnessing. And do you know the fourth thing that happens when the church of Jesus Christ erects these four walls to God's wisdom and ceases to be a dependable delivery system of God's wisdom to the world, to the neighborhood? Lost persons die and perish eternally in hell. We had two funerals yesterday. We send our sincere Christian condolences to both families. There's a funeral home. I will not call its name. It is at a major intersection in Nassau. And every time I go past that intersection, I look at that funeral home, and every time, morning, noon, or night, there's a funeral hearse parked in the driveway, the front driveway, by the front doors of that funeral home. And as a funeral director's kid, I know exactly what that means. That there's a casket soon to come out of that funeral home with a dead person's body in it to go into that funeral coach. You don't park your funeral coach at your front door unless you're just about to use it. People are dying all around us. Do they know Christ? Have they heard the wisdom of God as found in his word, as found in his gospel, as found in his church? It's not okay that people are dying without Christ. Everybody doesn't make it to heaven. We need to be Persons, and then we need to be an aggregate of persons called an assembly that has none of these four walls up. No wall of denial telling God, we don't need your wisdom. No wall of delinquency saying, I'm not going to ask God for wisdom. No wall of doubt that says, I doubt if God will give me his wisdom. And certainly no doubt, doubt or wall rather of divided allegiance, which says, I'm going to marry God's wisdom with the world system's system wisdom. We've got to stop that. We've got to get these walls down. We've got to make sure they never go up so we can receive God's wisdom. Amen? and then disperse God's wisdom for God's glory. 
and praise. We're going to come to this table in a few minutes. Not as perfect people. I'm far from perfect pastor, and we're far from a perfect people. But the table is spread because Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice of his own body and blood that we can be forgiven, that we can be cleansed, that we can get a fresh start after a fresh start after a fresh start, and that we can choose to live under his lordship as cleansed followers of his. And so as you come to the table this morning, I hope that you'll use the time to ask the Lord if there's any unconfessed sin in your life. We talked in this sermon, giving you a chance to pray about any things you've doubted God about, but maybe there's other sin that you've never confessed or admitted to God that needs to be silently and individually confessed before you take the bread or you take the cup. Because to take the bread or to take the cup with known unconfessed sin in your life is to partake of it in an unworthy manner. And there was a serious consequence in Corinth when believers came to this table and it was, were drunk at this table and didn't wait for each other at the table and didn't face up to their unconfessed sins. Some were weak, that is, physically sick, and some slept. A euphemism, a soft way of saying some were killed by God. That's heavy. That's real. It's not business as usual when we come to the table each month. It's a time to worship Christ, forgiving his body and his blood for us. It's time to be cleansed. It's time to ask for the Lord, the Spirit of God, for any unconfessed sin in our lives, and then to admit it to him, to call it by name, and in his strength, turn from it to live righteous and holy lives. 